Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Lisa Qualls on a parent's perspective on trust-based relational intervention. Hey, everybody. It's Karen Buckwalter here from Chaddock. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. So my guest for today is Lisa Qualls, and she recently co-authored a book, uh, The Connected Child, uh, with the late Karen Purvis. It was a project that they were working on throughout Karen's illness and uh, ended up being able to finish. So something that's really special about the book is it's one of the final things that Dr. Purvis um, contributed to. And I want to tell you a little bit about Lisa. She's the parent of 12 children by birth and adoption and sometimes uh, has other children in her home through foster care. She also has a blog called One Thankful Mom, and she's often a speaker at events for foster and adoptive parents. And she wanted to write this book with Dr. Purvis to kind of look at from a parent perspective how she has implemented TBRI in her family. So again, it's called The Connected Parent, Real Life Strategies for Building Trust and Attachment. And I'm looking forward to sharing this interview with you. Join the Knowledge Center for an experiential workshop designed to support successful engagement of parents in the child therapy process. Karen Doyle Buckwalter will be joined by Daphna Lender for the other half of the equation, engaging parents in child therapy. This two-day workshop on April 28th and 29th will focus on how to identify parents who need more focused work, how to set goals for the parent, how to help parents initiate relationship repair, and more areas to help the child, parent, and therapist get the most out of the therapy session. Registration is now open. For more information or to register for the workshop, head to tkcchaddock.org. So Lisa, it's so good to have you here again and uh, to continue our conversation about your book, The Connected Parent. So thanks for continuing. Well, thank you for having me. It's, It's great. Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to talk with you about that you do such a wonderful uh, job of talking about in this book is sensory needs of kids. And so, you know, anybody who's familiar with TBRI knows that understanding sensory processing disorder and sensory needs is a big part of it. In fact, uh, when I first uh, met Dr. Purvis, it was before TBRI was even a thing. I actually Mm -hmm. first met her presenting many years ago at a conference where she was presenting um, with another person. Um, And it was the sensory things that she was talking about that really caught my, my ear, my attention, because um, I had heard like, I think there's a lot of overlap with different understanding of attachment and trauma and what children need, but that sensory piece, I feel like she was talking about that in some very specific ways. So I love that you wrote about that in the book, but I also love how you didn't just talk about it as this other issue floating around out there, but you tied it into how it impacts attachment. 
Yes. Well, I so remember anything when I, you want to say about okay. sensory, sensory and attachment, whatever. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, first of all, when I first started hearing about sensory processing um, and disorders and all of that, I remember thinking, I, that sounds great, but I cannot learn one more thing right now. Yeah. I, my brain is so full. I'm trying to do this trust-based connected parenting and that's just going to have to wait. And uh, and then we were at, working with this therapist and my son was in the room and he ran over to me and he just smacked right into me and he hit his, his head on my chin. And, and she said to me, does that happen often? I said, all the time. I said, you know, he's such a sweet boy, but he is so rough. He's always banging into me. He's, you know, he's just kind of like a bull in a China shop. And she said, you know, I think you should have him assessed for sensory processing disorder by an OT. And I, I remember thinking, you know, maybe she's right. Maybe there's something here. And the biggest gift I found with learning about sensory processing disorder, well, first of all, I learned about the sensory needs of all kids, you know, and all of And adults. And adults, yeah. Right? And adults, right? You know what? Right now in my hand, I'm holding this little fidget and rolling it on my fingers because it helps me when I'm doing interviews. So there you go. Um, anyhow, I had attributed so many things with this one child to attachment. I thought that the resistance to eye contact, resistance to touch, um, you know, I, I tell the story in the book about giving him a kiss on his cheek at bedtime. And as I walked out of the room, I glanced back and he was wiping it off his cheek. Okay. All of those things kind of pierced my heart as a mom, like, oh, you know, he doesn't want my touch. He doesn't want my closeness. And he probably doesn't even want me for a mom, you know. But when I began to learn about sensory processing, it gave me this whole new paradigm to look at his behaviors through. And it gave me so much more hope. And the great thing and about And it gave you about, a way to not personalize it. Right, right, right. It wasn't me. It was, it was the way his brain was wired and the way it was functioning. The great thing about learning about sensory processing is that it was so fun to figure out. It was so fun to explore things with him, you know? Uh, I remember we kind of dove in and we, we got a little trampoline. We got these big squishy stuffed animals. We got a weighted blanket. Um, our son had always had some trouble with sleep and we got him a little, a little pop-up tent that we put on top of his bed. Of course, now they make really fancy ones. This was just like a kid's pop-up tent that was cheap. And we put it on top of his bed and he started sleeping in there with a sleeping bag. And it gave us a lot of, um, it was sort of like this positive, fun way of connecting with him. And then with our other kids too, because of course, once we started doing all these neat things with him, we started changing the way we were approaching things with the other kids too. And we did have to get more creative in terms of building attachment with this one child because, you know, my other kids, one of my biggest things I did with a lot of my kids was I spent a lot of time in the rocking chair. Mm -hmm. Well, this child was not going to snuggle up in a rocking chair. Now, he might sit next to me in the rocking chair. He might not want to be held, but he might sit next to me while I read a story. Um, you know, he's not going to be the one who I can hold a sippy cup of milk and give it to him. Like he, he needed to do those things on his own, but 
I think I, I was more open to exploring new ways of how to continue building attachment with him. They were just different from my other kids. You know, I had one daughter, if I got in the rocking chair with her, she would have stayed there forever, you know? Mm -hmm. So it also, I talk about in the book how I was concerned that when he was out like in the world in school and church, different places that he'd be perceived maybe as, as a, bad kid as a difficult kid because he was so rough and loud and and once I had the vocabulary of sensory processing disorder that helped me explain things to other people too so anyhow it was a big part of our learning and still still I mean my youngest two are teens now and I am still often thinking about sensory needs for them Mm -hmm. because in particular one of them has still significant challenges I would say but he knows how to meet a lot of them now Mm-hmm. Was it easy for you to find an OT that was skilled in assessing sensory issues? Well, the closest one that we found was about 300 miles away. Okay. So, but that's where our therapist was too. Okay. And so we went to a children's hospital. We did a big assessment. But then she gave me, you know, I want you to read this. These are some things I want you to try. So I had a whole sort of home plan to explore. Mm -hmm. And I actually only got to see her a couple times. But there's so much information available, you Mm -hmm. know, that um, we were able to learn a lot and just start applying things on our own. Well, one of the things that you said in the book related to this topic that I thought, I mean, some of these things, okay, it seems basic, but mm-hmm. it, but it isn't, you know, and you just said to to watch your children so carefully around, you know, what they're drawn to, you know, like, mm-hmm. we don't want to minimize the importance of an OT evaluation, but you were also saying, I mean, because I do work with a lot of parents where they, they, they don't have access to someone that, that could assess this. And, and I've actually even worked with parents who go to pretty prestigious universities for assessments. And some of this is not clearly mm-hmm. like spelled out or evaluated. So sometimes I feel like, gosh, you know, the, the ones that are with them the most is the parents, if they can become so observant, like you're saying, like, what are, what were some of the things that you noticed about different children um, you know, your children, as you were observing them, really, like, oh, this is a sensory thing. Even something maybe the OT couldn't have known. Like, only you knew from being around them this much. Well, even before we knew about sensory processing, we knew this son of ours was really sensitive to sound. Mm-hmm. So we would giving me and my husband had like the base, really basic ear protection down for when he used a big saw or something down in the garage. And our little guy just started wearing those we just hung them down low on a hook and he'd put them on and just wear them in the house and he um we got him a weighted blanket you know well I guess we didn't get the weighted blanket until a little later but there were things that we figured out like he loved to spin out on the lawn he liked to swing and so he liked some fairly um more exuberant physical play than some of our other kids, you know? And so, and he loved water. So water became a really important tool. In the summer, of course, we spent a lot of time at the pool, but at home, getting in the bathtub, you know, and just being in that water was so calming to him. And, you know, some of these things were a little bit just natural, like, okay, 
It may be before dinner, but I think a bath might really be helpful. So we just, yeah, we just explore. There's that, there's that flexibility again. Yeah. I mean, you just, you just have to be, and I had enough big kids. I could have a big kid just sitting there, you know, and he could take a bath while I cooked dinner. And that made dinner so much easier, you know, and one of our daughters, she, really loved a lot of spicy foods. And, you know, I think a lot of parents might have said, hey, that's too much, you know, that you don't need that. You know, maybe my old self would have done that. Like, okay, you can have this much hot sauce, but come on, let's be reasonable. Well, with her, there was no such thing as too spicy. Like it was right to her to have it be really hot and spicy. And so we just let her and we let her put a lot of, um, spices on everything that she wanted. It was totally fine. But again, you know, before with my earlier crew of kids, I was not as flexible about food and I had to learn to be. And sometimes parents will choose hills to die on that. We really have to remember what's important. And I, yeah, I really encourage parents to let go of the things that don't really matter all that much and focus on the things that do. Mm -hmm. And so you even just now use the words you had, the old you might have done this. How did you let go of the old you? Mm. I probably out of total desperation, I had to be willing. I had to be willing, you know, to at least like I remember at first saying, okay, I don't know if this is right. I don't know if we're making the right decision to shift this one area of our parenting, but I'm gonna set my fear aside because I had a way of parenting that had worked, you know? And I had to set my fear aside and say, okay, let's, let's try it. Let's try it for a week. Let's try it for a month and see if that works. We, and I, having a husband who was you know willing to try things with me with the kids made a very big difference you know i wasn't completely alone but i also had to surround myself with other adoptive moms in particular for me who were also open to trying new ways of parenting you know moms who we would encourage each other and you know, tell each other, you're doing a good job. Keep going. Don't give up. I know it's really hard, you know, and I consciously stepped away from people who were very discouraging. Like the people who would say to me, are you sure you should have adopted? Or, you know, maybe you're not supposed to keep her. I mean, this is really bad. Things aren't going well. Maybe she needs someone else. You know, I had to distance myself from those kinds of communities, especially online, and surround myself with people who really had so much love for me and my kids and belief that there was always hope, you know. So all of those things helped me be willing to embrace a new way of parenting. And I know that there are people, at, when this book was coming out, I thought, you know, there are going to be people from my life before who are going to read it and say, wow, they've got a slippery slope, you know, and they're not parenting the way they should be. But this is the way we need to parent children who've experienced early trauma and adversity. Their brains are wired differently from our kids who were born to us, you know, and we just have to be willing. I'm really thinking about what you said that you had to distance from certain groups, even online groups, um, 
I think there's some that can become toxic for, for people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think what worries me the most is parents who see the child as the enemy, as the yes. problem. It is their trauma and their past experiences that we're fighting against. We are not fighting against our children. Our children, um, you know, what has happened to them is not going to be erased. They've been impacted. And so we have to pick up where they are when they come to us and just do our very best. And, and when, once parents get to the point where they're like people who call their children radish or even say my rad kid, you know, um, it's hard to reverse all of that. It can be done, but you've got to, parents have got to not make the child the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so, because then that child becomes on the outside of the whole family. Right. I, I just, I wish I could like do a cheer or something about mm-hmm. what you're saying because it's just so important. And I think it even leads into, you know, a final topic I wanted to see if you could share about, um, because I think some of that comes out of fear and, and, and you said, um, my worst parenting has been out of fear. Mm -hmm. And so it's this idea that I have this external enemy that unfortunately is the child. And I call it the parents starting to almost present as though they're a victim of the child because there's fear there, but then there's also a giving up of positive power when you become that victim. Um, so what, tell when you said my worst parenting has been out of fear, we'll talk about that, um, what that means to you. What a brave thing to say. Well, this was true even before we adopted, <laughs> you know, this is, I think is this, maybe this is true for every parent out there or maybe even true in every close intimate relationship that we are our worst in fear, but continue, right? Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I think I, even before we adopted, I think sometimes fear motivated a lot of my decisions about parenting and about what I was going to let my children do or not do, how I was going to educate them. You know, I just, I, I would get into this space of feeling like if I didn't do it this way, everything was going to fall apart, you know? Well, then you add all these children with all these needs into our lives. And, you know, (laughs) it's hard when, when you have children who are really dysregulated, wow, it's hard to stay regulated yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. And that fear can just start spinning, spinning bigger and bigger. And then I think what happens sometimes with parents is they think, this child is a source of my fear. If I get rid of this child somehow, some way, then I can calm myself and everything will be okay. And that's not, it's not true. But when we're in fear, we just don't make good decisions, you know? And parenting is just loaded with decisions, just so many decisions. And, you know, we talk a lot about how sad looks like mad, fear can look like mad. Yes. And I remember one night at the dinner table, talking about something with one of my teens and one of my boys, one of my adult kids now said, mom, why are you so mad? And I said, 
well, I'm not, I'm not mad at all. And he said, well, you look really mad. And I had learned enough by that point. I said, you know what? Actually, I think I'm just really scared. I'm afraid that if we do whatever it is you want to do, that things could go really badly and you might get hurt. And that was such a teaching moment for me to have my teenage son pointed out to me, you know? So yeah, I think decisions made in fear uh, definitely have brought about my worst parenting. I sometimes forget. I mean, my oldest now is 33. My kids range from 33 to 13. And sometimes I forget, you know, they have to, they're on this journey to becoming adults and their lives and they are going to make mistakes and I'm going to make mistakes, but we need to calm down. I need to calm down as the mom and trust that everything's going to be okay. You know, things are not, there are no disasters waiting to befall us most of the time. You know, yes, we might make a decision that doesn't end up working out very well, but I don't need to sink into fear. I need to have some confidence in myself, in my kids, in for me as a person of faith, that um, I need to make my decisions from a place of peace and not fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's... Um... So, so important what you're saying. Um, you know, sometimes I say, uh, you know, how we talk about the different levels of the brain and we can't have everybody go back brain. I mean, you know, so, so, somebody, somebody's got to stay out of that, you know, fight, flight, fear response. And um, it's so easy to jump in there with, with your child rather than be able to co-regulate, instead amplify the negative affect. Um, Right. And I think the co-regulation, once parents understand that, that I have to be calmed in order to help my child calm, I think then then we have a reason besides just wanting ourselves to feel better, but we have a reason like, oh, okay, if I am, if my heart's racing, if I'm feeling like this, if I'm moving really fast and all of these things, then I can't calm my child. So I need, sometimes I just have to step out of the room and do some slow, deep breathing, you know, to bring myself into some regulation in order to help my child regulate. The other thing that really helped me was learning about, um, I think it's Dr. Bruce Perry who talks about activities that are rhythmic, Mm -hmm. repetitive and relational equal regulation. That helped me so much. So sitting in a rocking chair with my child wasn't just good for my child. I was regulating too, you know, Mm -hmm. that rocking, that uh, repetitive motion, we could, we could calm together. We could co-regulate, you know, and I think about a lot with my husband, even, you know, like when I'm a little bit keyed up just the other day, he put his arms around me and he was hugging me, but he was kind of gently rocking me back and forth. And all of a sudden the words came to me, rhythmic, repetitive, relational, you know, (laughs) because it was, it was working. It was making me feel calmer. So Yeah. I think learning these regulation techniques for ourselves is super useful. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, like you're saying, bringing bringing both of you into you know, right a, a more regulated state. So mm-hmm. so important um, what you're talking about. Oh, well, this is so good. I oh, I really. 
I'm excited for you. And when, when did the book actually release? I was, I was... It came out July 7th. Okay. And the audiobook released just a couple days later. We're getting really good feedback on that, too. Actually, the book's doing fantastic. And the audiobook, I got to read myself, which was the best because I'm telling my family's own stories. And, you know, I people are really liking the way the framework of the book is in that every chapter starts with my stories and then Dr. Purvis is teaching and then my stories at the end. So like it's real life. The subtitle is real life strategies for building trust and attachment because I'm talking about how I really actually use these tools in my family. And sometimes I didn't do it well and I didn't do it right, but I just kept learning and trying. The other thing, um, Harvest House created a study guide. So for practitioners who want to work through this book with their clients or if they have groups, um, there's a free study guide that they, um, right now it's not on my website yet, but they can email me if they're interested and I will get that to them and they are welcome to use it. And so what is your, your, we can put it in some notes, but just if you want to go ahead and say the e- your email for folks, that would be great too. Yes, my email is lisa at onethankfulmom.com. Great. So, and my website is One Thankful Mom. I also want to mention that I have a, a private small membership group just for moms, adoptive and foster moms. And we do a lot of this deep exploration and a lot of compassionate care for one another in that group. And that is possibly my very favorite thing I do is support moms because they come depleted and discouraged. And we have a fair number of adoption professionals in that group because they have no place where they can really be honest and get the kind of support they need because they're out there serving their communities, you know? Mm. So it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And I love it. Well, that's a wonderful resource to know about. And I think, you know, we're learning, um, as we've gone through the COVID pandemic, you know, so many things, so many ways to support each other, even online, because that's, you know, part of what I was asking was, where did you have to go to get these resources? And, mm-hmm. you know, because that, that is such an issue sometimes and um, with online ways of doing this and, and groups like you're talking about, I think that's so important and that they're, you know, that they're vetted because as we said earlier, there are some of those groups that make things worse rather than better. <laughs> right. uh, really, you know, to be mm-hmm. quite honest. So, um, well, Lisa, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast and, and for all the work you put into this book and what, and the message that you're sharing and the resources you share. So thank you for being a guest. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 